0: So I read your book and it's, it's fascinating just because I think gender and sexuality and all these different topics that kind of get muddy together have, they keep coming back in our culture in in really interesting ways. And uh, I think one idea that you had was, um, you talked about men being men in relationship to women. I don't know if you could kind of expand on that idea a bit.
1: Well, I think, I mean, it's not novel to say anymore, but there's no such thing as one kind of masculinity. Um, I think, you know, you you study anthropology, I study anthropology. One of the fascinating things to me is that most people in anthropology who study men and masculinities study men who have sex with men. And so... um, For whatever reasons my work has been a little different in terms of the focus has mainly been on heterosexual men and um so i've one of the things i've been very concerned about is the relationship of women to men and masculinities and it's both a question of women who are present but also women who are not present sort of physically but are present emotionally, and as a reference point, and all that, in terms of, of of men who compare themselves or who who gauge their own masculinity somehow in relationship to women. And I think it's a it's a very uh, widespread phenomenon. It's not true of all men, though. So I just right. sort of I want to qualify that. But I've been particularly interested in relationships between men and women, negotiations in. Uh, couples, for instance, over everything from birth control to childcare to, you know, all sorts of other things. How do people work that, that stuff out? And what's fascinating to me is we're talking about a very microcosmic context, which is what a lot of anthropologists, obviously, we do. But the implications and the relationship of, you know, what I study in terms of these very uh, intimate kinds of, of conversations and and actions has everything to do with what's going on more broadly in society um, right. and changes in terms of women increasingly working in the workforce, um, men um, to a varying extent doing more with child care than their parents, uh, their fathers or, or grandfathers did, for instance. Right. Um, So it's in that negotiation, it's in that trying to, the changes that are going on um, at a very intimate level are both reflections, but then they're also catalysts, I think, uh, to broader social change. It's not just social change has to happen and the family's the last bastion of conservative thinking or Mm -hmm. something like that. I mean, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's also, it's literally men learning from particular situations that they're in with women, hmm. um, and that leading to broader change. Um, right. I mean, that's certainly been true of my own life, and, and most men that I know um, who are in relationships with women, um, they have changed because of those in
0: fundamental ways. Yeah, and that's the other just interesting thing is that not only are men men in relationship to women they're also men through women especially when we talk about heterosexual relationships right like it's it's a fascinating thing and you also talk about how um women have pitched against biological explanations through you know feminism and modern movements trying to buck against some of the established norms that we have really shaken in terms of women but you also mentioned that men haven't really had that similar kind of movement. You know, what does that mean for developing masculinity if that hasn't quite happened?
1: Right. I mean, it's it's uh there have not been sort of men's movements demanding, you know, better forms of birth control for men. Right. Um <laughs> and it's it's one of the um I think outcomes of being in a sort of socially superior position. Um, mm. that men don't tend to change unless they're forced to. Mm. Um, it's not out of the goodness of their heart. It's not because they're suffering in some fa- you know, fashion in an analogous way so that some of this has to be forced. It's not identical by any means, but it's similar to questions of racism and, and white privilege. Mm. Um, in general, whites don't take a lot of initiative unless they're forced to. Um, right. There are certainly, you know, a lot of more progressive whites in the world, and there always have been, um, but sort of as a group, um, you know, I think that this is social struggle. Social um, movements um, force these kinds of changes on people who, who, who are better off, who benefit mm. in some profound regard from the status quo, so... Yeah. You know, women, along you know, looking at a lot of of issues of inequality from pay to access to education, to childcare and house care, um, we're also, have also been looking at language in a serious way. And I should Mm -hmm. say women and men who are, uh, sympathetic and, and, and interested in changing that situation too. Um. And I just don't think it's happened with men. They haven't had to. Uh, they can mm. get away with stuff. Uh, I mean, you know, why were we all so surprised after the pussy grabbing tape came out that he still got elected? You know, right. um, you, maybe you weren't, but virtually everybody I know was surprised that right. that didn't doom him. Because it's sort of like, what are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. I don't like it, but that's just the way it is. And that's the status quo. And yeah. so you don't really challenge that kind of language. You don't, you know, you, you, you say, well, we, we don't approve of it. But it's not condemned in the same kind of way as you would have in, in, in uh, you know, the civil rights movement. Um, statements about uh, killing whites or something like that got immediate attention. You know, but statements about killing blacks, they don't get the same kind of attention. Hmm. People get away with it.
0: I think a a big point of that is like how the stagnant kind of conversations about, like you said, men not having to do any of that work um, has kind of in some ways been to the detriment of men and notions of masculinity in, in the sense of how, you know, we, I guess we talk about how let's say in universities and in in academia sort of men are falling behind in terms of enrollment and, and graduation rates compared to women and I know this is a bit more anecdotally but I think like in my life I know a lot of guys and people I grew up with that I don't like are searching for something right They're sure. they seem a bit lost and that's the kind of sentiment that people like Jordan Peterson sort of tapped into right like this sort of lost boys kind of sentiment. And I guess Trump sort of played on that too, just in a different way. Yeah. But in all of it, it just seems like people are reaching for something and it just seems like they're not getting it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, it's, there's some structural inequalities out there. Part of it is just we need to be paying more attention. Um, the issue of suicide, I think, is a, is a really good one three or four times more men commit suicide in the world than women. Mm. There are certain countries where this is not true, but virtually every country on earth, that's true. At the same time, many more women try to commit suicide than men, Mm. but don't succeed. So then you have to ask, well, why is that? Um, And so one of the things I think we need to look at is the risk factors of being male. Um, and it's not risk factors in the sense of sort of some innate biology, um, or innate tendency to do risky things necessarily. Um, but I think the fact that men tend to be slower in going to get, seek medical care until it's an emergency, Mm -hmm. you know, these are, these are cultural factors that can and, and should change, um. So it's not like, you know, being a guy is necessarily hunky-dory. Men still die before women. And there's a big debate over whether this is sort of biological causes or whether it actually has to do with lifestyle, occupational hazards, you know, things like that. Um, But I think simply paying more attention um, to men as men, uh, it doesn't explain everything, but it can explain better uh, it can help us explain better certain things, whether it's suicide, whether it's mass murders. I mean, mm. uh, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, mm. you know, mass murders in the world virtually always take place in the United States. Not always, but one of the, mm. you know, keys is you're from the U.S. Another one is you're white, another one's you're young, and another one is you're male. Mm. And it's not simply some brain chemistry that went, or fluey, and it's not even that there's more guns in the U.S. There's a lot of guns in Switzerland, and there are not a lot of mass murders there. Wow. So there's there's different kinds of factors that need to be taken into account. I'm not saying guns don't have anything to do with it, but it, in and of itself, it doesn't explain anything to me. It, who has the guns and, and, and who does mm-hmm. these kinds of things? Um, so as I say, it's white, young but it's also male. And so why are it, why is it young men who are doing this? Young women can buy guns. They could do it too. Why aren't they? Yeah. You know, and I, I I think that we need to look to social factors around suicide, not just depression and, you know, individual problems. Um, Mm -hmm. and we need to look at, at social factors. You know, I'm preaching to the converted here, but
0: yeah, no. I mean, whoever else is listening as well, you know, <laughs> uh, and a big part of the thing that your book does does really say and draw out is how multifactorial it is, right? Like we can't be too narrow in looking at any one thing and you talk a lot about some biology mostly in terms of how a lot of it is too narrow and then you draw in epigenetics, you draw in all these other considerations and I think in psychology like there's a big, uh, looking at like general personality traits that different genders have, right? Mm-hmm. On average, they say that like men are different from women and that like women are more, I guess, higher in neuroticism, right, in terms of the big five personality and higher in agreeableness and men are higher in assertiveness and openness to ideas. And they kind of say that that's one of the ways that men and women in terms of gender differ. That Correct. does map right on to sex, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I don't know what you kind of think about that in terms of a rationale, right? Because that tends to be the argument is evident. No, I th-
1: and I think it's powerful. Um, <laughs> just a, as a complete aside, it's interesting that in Mexico, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is attended uh, by men and women go to Neurotics Anonymous, even if they're <laughs> alcoholics. There's yeah. a separate thing called neurotic Anonymous, and women tend to go to that more than alcoholics anonymous. Um, oh. So I, I, I think your point is well taken. There's an association that's made, not just in the United States, um, and not just in sort of academic psychology. I'll give you two examples, um, which I think might, might speak to uh, the points you're making. One is, if we go back 100 years in the world to uh, 1920, uh, other than a few queens, there were virtually no political leaders in the world who were women. Mm. And if you and I had been having a similar conversation, um, and we'd been talking about, why aren't there any women political leaders? I think we could come up with a, a similar trait list. Well, men are just more organized, more aggressive, more <laughs> ambitious, more, uh, f- they have, you know, further vision for society, social sort of, uh, chops and all that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if one of us had said, well, you know, I think there's some women who could do that too. Yeah. Maybe exceptionally, but don't you think if, if women were capable of being political leaders after all these millennia in the world, all these different kinds of societies, et cetera, et cetera, don't you think we would have seen some women leaders by now? No, it's, 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 there's something innate. And a hundred years later in 2020, we can't say that anymore. Okay. I mean, there might be some, you know, dinosaurs running around saying that kind of (laughs) stuff, you know, Uh, troglodytes. But the fact is that um, some conditions change socially enabling women to do that some political ideas through struggle changed and so lo and behold now whether that's changed sort of politics is that's another question but the fact is that there are many women nowhere near equal still in in most of the world there are some countries which actually there's more women in the in the national parliaments but that's the exception but nonetheless that's the direction by and large things are going the other one is a more salacious example, and that's porn. You know, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, if you'd said, well, why do men watch porn and women don't? Um, The answer would have been because of visual stimulation. Men are sexually stimulated visually much more than women. And there were academic studies all over the place Mm -hmm. that showed this. This proved it to be true. And so, you know, we're just hardwired differently. We get stimulated sexually differently, et cetera, et cetera. That's why guys watch porn, women don't. And then the internet comes along, and lo and behold, um, I, I don't actually know the final numbers. I don't think anybody could, and that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. But there's absolutely no doubt in the world that some women, you know, in in, in, in their millions, uh, just like some men in the millions, watch porn and like mm-hmm. porn. Um, yeah. What's changed is not women's biology. What's changed is you can do it now privately. And so the stigma of watching porn, which was always there for men too, but a little less or a lot less, but was there heavy. I mean, to, to have a woman go into a porn theater would not have, you know, that would have been yeah. exceptional. And you're probably too young to even remember things called porn theaters, but I remember them yeah. when I was a teenager. Um, so, the, but you can't, it's like before the internet, it's it's really hard to prove that women also, a lot of women can be visually stimulated. And so it's just like this belief builds up, men are aggressive, men are this, men are that, women are the other way, women are neurotic. And I just think that we need to all take a big breath and look a little more carefully at some of these things we're so sure about in terms of the basic nature of women, basic nature of men. Mm-hmm. I have a colleague now retired at Brown named Anne Fausto-Sterling, who is a brilliant biologist and has studied gender and sexuality a lot. And one of the things she says is that we don't know what the differences are between men and women, uh, ultimately, the biological differences, and we won't until there's really political equality. And then we'll be able to see, are there any differences, you know, uh, worth talking about uh, in terms of personality, for instance, and all that. Her hunch is that there are far, far fewer uh, than, than we might think today.
0: Right. And a big part of it is, like you've been mentioning, those sort of confirmation biases, right? Like people are picking and choosing what they want in order to kind of prove their point. You, a really great example of that in the book was comparing chimpanzees and bonobos, right? People look at bonobos, look to them as, yes, dominant, aggressive males, and at the same time bonobos are just equally distant to us but we kind of just pick and choose depending on what aligns with our kind of pre-existing beliefs or politics and yeah.
1: we cherry pick uh, yeah. the, exa- we, the examples um, and i guess one of the things which is curious to me is why are we so prone why are we so much more comfortable with biological arguments in other words mm. You know, if it's biology, it's like, well, what are you going to do? Hmm. And, um, you know, you can't really change biology overnight. And so you just have to accept it. You may not like the way it is, but what are you going to do? And yeah. it ends up letting men off the hook, I think.
0: Right. Yeah, hence our men animals, right? That <laughs> It's not really doing us any service, right, to like just... Stick with the biological explanation and just sort of leave it there because then it just promotes this structure of complacency. I think that's that's a really big part of the book that you Yeah, and
1: it's me, even it's also simplistic biology. It's not even very sophisticated biology that, that people are, are referencing.
0: You mentioned a colleague of yours, Richard Bribiescas oh
1: brubescus yeah he's not a colleague of mine but he's he's at yale yeah
0: he you mentioned the the, the quote that he said that an idea is like a cockroach put on a table and if you can't <laughs> kill it maybe it's meant to survive i thought that was a really good one just because i think do we even know that scholars are even doing that when we read their book i think people just want to sort of believe and read the things that they read that sort of aligns with some of what they already think kind of like we we're talking about in terms of you know bonobos yeah. and chimps and I think that's a perfect way of putting it, right? Like people are throwing out ideas and hypotheses, trying to like work them out, and within that, we're seeing highly politicized, highly strong opinions on what's really going on. When I think, kind of like you mentioned that, and Fossil Sterling mentioned, we have no idea what any of this, what it really is, what the real differences are. And oh yeah, go ahead. No, no. I'm, just wondering like what do you think about this sort of because especially when we talk about in the public sort of the conversations being conducted between like public intellectuals that tends to be a big part of it right people are just so really have strong opinions about what the biological and what the real differences are between men and women behaviorally and Mm -hmm. we can't really get to that truth of just working out an idea yeah
1: I mean I think all these efforts, you know, whether it's it's writing a book about it and studying it or talking about it in the podcast, um, I think are part of looking at what we might take for granted more critically. Hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that's what anthropology is about. Um, right. we, we live by the stereotype. And we live Mm -hmm. to disprove stereotypes and we, we almost go out, you know, on, on our, on our research investigations, you know, what's the biggest stereotype having to do with this Mm -hmm. and why do people believe it and how might people change their mind about it and all that? Um, or why do people in this place believe one thing and people in another place believe just the opposite? Um, Mm -hmm. So one of the curious things that's happened is a certain homogenization of a of a of a global masculinity um, hmm. identity and and practice, which is I think a lot of it has to do with global capitalism and certain images of what a powerful man looks like, what a uh, you know what a manly man looks like. And I think that's, you know, whether it's Jeff Bezos or, or, or Mm. Donald Trump or whatever. um, There's all sorts of stuff wrapped up in terms of the aspect of them being men and controlling a great deal um, of Mm. other people's destinies um, and seeking to do that. So I think in terms of you know, questioning some of this, the book, I'm uh, one of the things I'm, I'm paying particular attention to is just simply the language, that we need to be more careful about what terms we use, whether it's testosterone or Y chromosome or this or that, and attributing more than we should uh, to particular kinds of, of biological um, features. First of all, we don't right. even know what we're talking... I mean, I don't know about you, but I never... Uh, have spent a great deal of time studying testosterone in the laboratory. Yeah. Um, nor has any of have any of my friends um, or family, and yet my friends and family will toss testosterone into a conversation at will. You know, until right. I, you know, jump up and down and, <laughs> and say, "Wait a minute! What are you talking
0: about?" <laughs> Because yeah. it, it,
1: it, they find it helpful. They find it reasonable, you know. And, right. uh, you know, if a woman's pissed off or a woman is sad or whatever, we don't as much anymore. Oh, my God, she must be having her period. Hmm. You know, that's considered not only sexist, but ridiculous sort of biologically. That does not explain, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time a woman gets pissed off or or, or or moody or something like that and the direct correlation the that language has been challenged in big ways right and uh, I think we need to do it with language around men and
0: masculinities right I think that's in terms of testosterone I was reading another book on like trauma and it, it, it sort of passively talked about testosterone in terms of like um it being linked with like sexual desire right in both men and women right. and it's it's interesting cuz that kind of i I wonder if like you're you're saying like we're making more of the findings than actually exists because you know there's enough testosterone in both men and women for that and you know it's it's everyone has levels of it but we 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 create this dose response relationship of if you have more of it, you are more masculine or, or aggressive or or dominant. Right.
1: right. But but if you take a group of a hundred men and you determine by some measure who wants to have sex more, I there will be no correlation between their levels of testosterone mm-hmm. and which in that which among that group and which men you know, say you know something. It's fine, but it's not that big a deal to me. Mm, right. um, they do not necessarily have lower testosterone. There mm. won't, but we we assume there it does. Similarly, if there if you know hundred guys who's been in a fight in the last year, do they have a higher testosterone level? Not necessarily. It doesn't correlate. Yeah. Not that directly. What may correlate is you get into a fight, your testosterone level goes up. <laughs> but that's different than sort of having a baseline testosterone level that's higher that causes you to want to have sex more or want to fight more or something
0: like that. Right. That's such a good point. Like which and, one and, came first?
1: Yeah. And then there's there's newer studies that say, well, you know, you could draw a correlation between generosity and higher testosterone levels. You don't hear much about that one because it doesn't sync up with the stereotype of men, you know, a higher mm. testosterone level leads to more generosity. No, no, that that doesn't work,
0: and so you <laughs> don't hear about that kind of stuff.
1: But there yeah, are yeah. studies out there that that that
0: allege that there's a correlation. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's like completely opposite. It's like <laughs> right. expect generous, generous with punches, maybe, but not necessarily right, exactly. like exactly. Yeah. That's... You talk about Margaret Mead's negative instance. In your uh-huh. book, a bit. Um, where, you know, we, if we see a negative instance and we can kind of reject that kind of as being held as this rigid truth. And I think what's been interesting is people who've talked about gender and, and masculinity, femininity, often there's an appeal more to like, yes, you know, variation exists, but ultimately, like, on average, we see this, right? And you know, 60% men doing this versus women, like, slightly higher is seen as, you know, a higher, significant enough average that we can probably chalk that up to, like, gender differences. And I guess I wanted to get your idea, uh, your take on sort of the, I guess, the the rationale and sort of the maybe different kind of standards that people are using to, to denote whether or not something is, you know, significant.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure, but maybe part of this is also a tendency, which I think is more prevalent in the U.S. and including the media than than I've seen in other places, where if you have 51% in favor of something, you speak in terms of the American people, you know, (laughs) want blah, blah, blah. Well, 49% don't, actually. That's kind of important. Right. Um, So just even talking about averages gets you into trouble, I think. Um, and in terms of, I'm trying to relate this back to, hmm. I mean, maybe it would be helpful here to, in terms of what you're getting at, to, to think of an example, um, of how this, of how we could, uh, that we could look at. Do you have an example?
0: yeah I think like even going back to the sort of personality differences example like you know we see that on average like men are you know less neurotic sure. than women right like those those little things of and honestly the differences don't seem very very wide right like there's there's tons of overlap but I guess someone like Jordan Pearson talks about like okay the overlaps here, but where they lap off, is kind of where we should focus, you know? So like there men are on this side of the spectrum and women are on this side and there's a lot of overlap in there, but where the sort of tails are is significant enough of a finding.
1: Yeah. I mean, hmm, there's a lot of different elements here. I mean, uh, there's a, um, well-known physical anthropologist, biological anthropologist, um, John Marks who has a book called 98% chimpanzee something like that mm-hmm. and one of the points is the 2% difference in our DNA with the chimps is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um similarly people before Jordan uh Peterson rather Jordan Peterson have made the point that you know that 2% or whatever 3% difference between men and women is the significant part and we should pay attention. So on the one hand, I don't want to just negate that, that, that those tiny percentages can make a big difference. On the other hand, in the case of the chimps and humans, I don't think it's amenable to a lot of social, cultural change over a period of 100 years, for instance. Whereas certain things that we attribute to men and women, I think humans literally are much more malleable, much more changeable in a shorter period of time. And so behaviors and thinking and identities and all sorts of stuff that we think are are set in stone, lo and behold, can change radically in ways that I don't expect chimps to be radically different in their social structures, in their hierarchies and all that in a hundred years. But I have no idea what human, if we're around humans, you know, society is going to look like in a hundred years. I you know, I'd like it to go certain directions, other people want it to go in other directions. But the and that'll be a, a debate and uh you know throughout. Mm. Um but it's there that we get into who who cares what an average is in a certain sense? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um because it 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 can change. You know, from one minute to another. Um not from one minute to another, but, but over a period of uh, a fairly short period of time. And for reasons that are not fundamentally biological, right. but fundamentally environmental, contextual, social, all these kinds of things. So what is average one day may not be average in 10 years. And that would be harder to say if you're looking at other animal species that don't right. tend to change radically in in shorter periods of time
0: yeah i I wonder to what extent even because you mentioned like our social cultural environment and how they're sort of shifting and who knows what it'll look like in 100 years and even those averages and something that you mentioned in the book was like how you know being in the military right i think something like one in seven men have been in the military have served at some point in their lives in the U.S. In, in and, the U.S., yeah. And that's really significant. Like, one in seven men, if one in seven men are doing anything that I think ultimately is entering into a lifestyle ultimately that does shape your perception and a lot of your values, a lot of, a lot of who you are in some fundamental ways, maybe. Um, like, that would bear a lot of weight in what culture looks like. And I, yeah. I wonder to what extent do you think that has like sort of uh, plays a role in what masculinity looks like?
1: Oh, I think it has to. Um, I don't. I'm judging from your accent that you grew up in the U.S.
0: I did. Yeah. Yeah, okay. in L.A.
1: <laughs> in a, all right. Um, but one of my first political memories in life was in the early 60s when my mother and I lived in a, in a tiny little apartment. And uh, I woke up one morning and I went into uh, the living room and I saw somebody on the couch sleeping who had a beard. Mm. And I immediately started shouting because I thought Fidel Castro had invaded the United States and he was sleeping on our couch. It turned out to be my uncle who'd grown a beard (laughs) since the last time he'd, he'd come to visit. And I guess he'd come, you know, late, later after I'd gone to sleep. But, you know, that was one of my first sort of political memories looking back. Um, But since then, I mean, since 1964, the United States has rarely gone a year without being involved in a war, without being involved in an invasion, an occupation, um, without there being an anti-war movement of some kind or another. Um, I mean, I you know, grew up in high school and college in the age of, of the Vietnam War, um, but that wasn't it. And how can that not have an impact Uh, When 85% of the uh, enlisted ranks are still male, you know, and you go into the officer ranks and it's even higher than 85%. So that it's associated, the military in the United States and every other country is associated with men, masculinity, all the rest of it. And if you are male and growing up in the United States, and uh, you're young enough that when you turned 18, uh, (laughs) did you register?
0: I did for the selective service, yeah. For the
1: selective service. And if you have a sister or a female cousin or whatever, she didn't. Okay? So you grew up in a society in which it was just expected. And my guess is either you couldn't get your driver's license or you couldn't do something. It's illegal not to register when you turn 18. Um, And if you're a trans woman, you have to register. If you're a trans man, you don't have to register. So it's very linked. It, it literally go onto the social, uh, the Selective Service website, and it's all listed. If you're oh, and by the way, if you're uh, if undocumented, if you sneak across the border into the United States, you have to register with Selective Service. If you're oh, wow. uh, uh, under 26 years old, you know whatever it is 18 to 26. So it's like, and you you've just broken the law by entering illegal in the United States, but you have to sign up. But it's only the males. And we take it for granted. So, you know, why is this all happening? This is a militarized society. There have rarely been more militarized societies in in the history of the world. And I don't see how that doesn't have a huge impact on every uh, male, as well as female, but every male in in a particular kind of way that you compare yourself to soldiers, you compare yourself to people who've been to war or you've been to war uh, and all these kinds of things. And you regard your sort of role in the world in somehow um, in relationship to military, Uh, either you're opposed to it you're in favor of it, you're ambivalent, whatever, but it's a constant uh, source of of, of, uh, a reference point throughout your life. Yeah.
0: And it's interesting how, who is the one even making the war, right? Like everyone sort of comes to associate themselves with it so much. Um, but you know, like the the thing with Donald Trump and him being at a funeral and him asking the person next to him, like, why would that person even do that? You know, someone who had uh, uh, passed away in war and, and in there, it's like the people who are ultimately making war aren't putting themselves at risk, and they're not even putting their families at risk. But there's a disconnect between the people making war and the people actually fighting in it. And I think that's the really, the really wow for me is how there's a disconnect between our values about self-sacrifice, about valorized notions of masculinity in conflict, and a big disconnect between the people who are making war but are so divorced themselves from it physically that there's a chasm between that and yet Donald Trump is still masculine
1: yeah and in my my father's generation he was in World War II in the Navy um, and he was from a middle class family and I think he even lied to get in I can't remember exactly Hmm. um, but it was something that a lot of middle-class, upper-class um, young men did and, and, and wanted to do voluntarily. Um, and increasingly over the, the last, you know, 60, 70 years, that's been less and less true. So it's increasingly become a military of the poor, uh, less middle-class and very few elite uh, kids mm. go into the military. You know, there's some exceptions, you know, Biden's kid. Right was in the military, but but they are exceptions. Um, at the same time, it you know in the Vietnam War, the percentage of African Americans in the military was roughly the same as it was in the population overall. After the Vietnam War, the numbers went way up. This is where employment was available, and if there wasn't a war, you were risking less of your life. Um, and then when the wars began, you know more in earnest again. Uh, in terms of Gulf War, in terms of uh, the numbers among African Americans went down, um, right. <clears throat> and the numbers among Latinos went up. I mean, it's in other words, you, there are all these social factors about who is expected to, who sees this as an option that they want to do for whatever reason. Um, right. The only thing I would argue is it's not simply a matter of economic forces pushing young men into signing up. That's a big part of it. Um, But there's also, you know, people have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan thinking they were going to do good, Mm -hmm. thinking they were going to help people uh, in these other countries because that's what they've been fed. Um, So, you know, there are people who have gone into this as sort of young men Because young men should sacrifice themselves, should devote themselves to the cause of others, should save, you know, people from misery, should do all these very masculinist kinds of, 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 um, goals, um, that have, that have worked to get more men, uh, signed up. Because it's all voluntary still, despite the fact that you signed up, Hmm. you you haven't been drafted.
0: No, I haven't. Yeah. And... In terms of one of your uh, informants, uh, it was um, a woman who had been in the military who talked about kind of watching her back, you know, when she was out, you know, in terms of enemy combatants potentially, and then coming back to base and sort of now having to watch her back with people who are supposed to sort of be on her side, but ultimately sort of the, the high rates of, like, sexual assault and rape in the military. So sort of that aspect of it. And I think it's interesting the fact that like who, like the motivations for joining the military are many, right? Some of them are economic. Some of them are definitely future oriented of like hopefully setting oneself up for being able to go to college or have a career of some sort. And other people are more idealistic than that. People are more yeah. wanted to serve their country or to do good. And yeah, yeah I, I just,
1: Tina, the young woman you're talking about, Tina Garnanas, she was from uh, Navajo country in the mm-hmm. Southwest, and she made it into Junior ROTC, ROTC, the, uh, in high school, and she, was, she excelled. She did really, really well, and so she volunteered to go uh, into the regular military, go off to Iraq. She was a medic there. Um, none of her brothers did. So Mm -hmm. she was the only one of the siblings who actually went off to war, joined the military, much less went off to war. Um, But it wasn't only when she came back that she got scared of being assaulted um, by members of the U.S. military, her her comrades in arms. It was in Iraq also, Uh, just going Mm -hmm. to the latrine. She would carry a knife or a bayonet Mm -hmm. or something in case she got assaulted on base. By by, wow. by one of the the other uh, soldiers there, um, and it was that was just an, an incredible awakening for her, in terms of how could that situation exist, um, and it, it led her to a, a, a series of epiphanies, really political epiphanies wow. about the war, but about her own life too.
0: Wow, and you also mentioned sort of the. The normalization of like men being hypersexual and the military sort of being the place where that's sort of it, the very least implicitly accepted in terms of like things like the First World War having like um you know I think it was Vietnam actually like you know ultimately like having like this normalized like men going off and sort of doing what they need to do to you know get theirs and you also mentioned that with the UN peace. Uh, officers in terms of like in Haiti and the Dominican Republic of sort of like going on the other side of the island they're not on duty if they're not the responsibility of the UN um, because of the whole like blue helmet children sort of phenomenon and it's really incredible that it's so within the structure it's so normalized that men are going to sort of do these things Mm -hmm. and it just seems like we're not super attentive to how the repercussions of that are so deep and damaging, especially when it comes to what we're expecting people in the military to do, right? To sort of do their job, I guess, and to serve their country. But ultimately, you know what, if they get aggressive, you know, that's just them being a man. Yeah. No, I
1: mean, it was, it was astonishing uh, to talk to officers in the, Uh, peacekeeping forces in Haiti and Lebanon. And it was almost, I mean, we never found the document, but it was almost as if uh, there there must have been a document because they all had the same timetable in their head. Three months is a long time for a guy to go without sex. Six months, Mm -hmm. that's the absolute limit. So, uh, you know, if we're going to avoid sexual exploitation and abuse of the locals, we have got to let them go somewhere else for R&R to have some sex with prostitutes over in Dominican Republic in the case of the troops stationed in Haiti, in Cyprus, uh, in the case of the troops stationed in Lebanon. Um, Right. And it was just like, hey, come on, we all know that's true. You know, it's just just biological needs. (laughs) Um, And if you go back and look at the history of warfare, I mean, you know, the French were famous for having... um, bordellos, you know, just behind the front lines that were established and maintained by the military because wow. guys got to do what they got to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really incredible. Like that it's so institutionalized ultimately. Yeah. What, um, how do you, I guess, how about you for yourself? How do you deal with issues of masculinity when it comes to yourself representing yourself? I know coming from a place of studying it, I'm sure it sort of makes you rethink it for yourself, but how have you sort of, I don't know, established masculinity in your life?
1: Uh, (laughs) Now now we're in a therapy session. Um, Ambivalently, I would say in terms of, of the relationship of my own, Being a Man, and my scholarship. My first book got reviewed uh, various places, but one of them was the Journal of Men's Studies, or something, I don't remember where. And it was a critique of the book, which was about fathering, really, in Mexico City. And it was a critique of the fact that I didn't mention my own father in the book and my own relationship with my own father and his fathering and blah, blah, blah. And I always thought it was an absurd criticism. It's like, no, that's not what I was studying. Um, I think that the motivation to study men and masculinity had little to do explicitly with my own being a man. I think Mm -hmm. being a man facilitated some of that. I think it had much more to do with it was an area that spoke to a social Um, set of problems and inequalities that had not been addressed sufficiently and so you know it's like a vacuum you know you rush to fill the vacuum in other words it was a good topic as an academic um, not so much for jobs because there never been a job sort of doing what I do in men and masculinity but for publications there's been a lot of interest I think I've had a, um, a not an easier time but it I think it has been. I've had a lot of opportunities to publish mm-hmm. um, because of the of the interest in the topic, and so I've, you know, that's been good. And I think I've been able to, you know, along with, uh, you know, tons of other folks, fill a niche, as it were, you know, a hole that we had or begin to fill it. That said, um, I don't think there's any doubt that. You know, one of my motivations initially was uh, to study men in in Mexico because I thought there was a lot of racism directed at men in Mexico as being somehow the worst kind of macho. Um, Mm. And it just didn't ring true to me. I thought there were a ton of really ridiculous and, and, and pretty awful machos in Mexico. But I thought the same in the United States or France or Russia, you know, Uh, or Chad, or or anywhere else on Earth. And that was, again, it was a a point that I thought was worth making. Um, More recently, I have been thinking, I have started a study on suicide, the, the example I used earlier in our conversation today. And I've been thinking about why Suicide rates are not only higher for men than women in general, but the groups that they're higher, that, where you find higher rates often don't correlate with racism, inequality uh, financially or anything else. So you find older white middle class men after they retire have a higher um, suicide rate very often. This is in the United States. And that's curious. And so that leads you to try to figure out, well, what does that have to do with, you know, men at the end of their life or toward the end of their life, feeling like it's better to take their own life and then cut it short than to to, to go through with whatever they're going through. So to the extent that I'm an older, white, uh, you know, middle-class man entering retirement, um... You know i've been wondering am i studying this because this is like you know somehow my demographic i've always shied away from sort of i want to study myself yeah but i'm wondering whether unconsciously i'm ending up there (laughs) uh at least in one study uh, toward the end of my toward the end of my life
0: yeah that sounds really cool how how is that study going
1: not well. It was a pandemic. Yeah. Um, right. So I started it about a year ago. I, I did some work in China um, because I, I've been doing work there uh, as well for many years. And, you know, I was hanging out with the head of the suicide hotline in the city called Nanjing and, yeah. um, you know, just starting to get things rolling. And the problem is, I'm not sure how to do it methodologically. I still haven't figured that one out. The pandemic certainly didn't help, but it's a weird, uh, awful topic because the key people are dead by definition. So what you can do is you can study the people who weren't successful or their survivors, family, and whatnot. Um, But I'm still trying to figure out my way around the the methodology. Which, if you've got any suggestions, I'm all ears.
0: Yeah, I honestly, for my research, I've been thinking about using uh, like social media, like having an you know an an entry survey, and then having them you know volunteer if they're comfortable their like social media handle, and then yeah. I'll I'll add them on a page or something, and you know that almost being a, as another way of an analysis, and that's that's a really good point. Like right now during the the pandemic it's yep. having to be a little bit more creative yeah
1: that's for sure so i'm i'm uh i'm doing a lot of reading mm-hmm. um and thinking about it but i haven't gotten
0: much further than that so far yeah and i know with the pandemic it's really i mean i think the numbers haven't been in yet but i know that certain like depression and anxiety and suicide rates seem to be yeah. on an incline and and. Yeah, that's really tragic. So what, I think. what is
1: your? Can I ask what your what your own research is? What it focuses on?
0: Yeah, uh, about a year ago, I, I pivoted. I was I was doing more nutrition based research in in Guatemala, but now I'm doing uh, I'm focusing on spinal cord injury here in Tampa. Hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, partially it's it's somewhat personal because my brother has a spinal cord injury, and cool. I you know, helping to take care of him for about eight years. I think I've, there was a lot of interest that I'd gain in terms of like what happens and both institutionally with spinal cord injury and rehabilitation, but also with people themselves in terms of like in the literature, social integration is one aspect that's kind of ill-defined, I think. I mean, it's, it's sort of taken for granted term and so I'm really focusing on like rehabilitation practices and, and some of the emotional and narr- narrative experiences of people with, with spinal cord injury.
1: Huh. So I know of some work on chronic pain, but that's in anthropology. It's, is that overlapping or is it de- Yeah, is definitely.
0: Separate? Yeah, it's definitely overlapping because chronic pain is a big part of like spinal cord injury and yeah. having to take lots of medications and neuropathic pain. It's... Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of, of overlap with that. Yeah.
1: So how far along are you? are you? Have you done some research or are you gearing up to do that when the pandemic allows?
0: Gearing up to do it. So I'm going to be taking my qualifying exams in okay. like the next month and then from there I'll be able to to really get started, but I have an extra NSF grant that I'm going to be submitting oh, um on the 15th, so Yeah.
1: Good luck with that. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I don't know if you have any sort of final thoughts or words that you'd like to say in terms of yourself or your research.
1: No, um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things. Uh, great questions. And um, anyway, thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you so much for making it. I appreciate All right, it. take care. All right, you too.
1: Bye.